Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, we're recording this podcast on a Sunday afternoon before Christmas. A lot of you will be listening to this after Christmas. My guest and I hope you had a great Christmas and looking forward to a wonderful 2021. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Warren Bittner. Welcome to the podcast, Warren. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, I'll introduce Warren, but of course, we want Warren to share his story. Warren is 62. He's been married for 34 years. He's the father of three and the grandfather. In his email, he wrote me the best four grandchildren on the planet. He's active in the church. He is gay. Um, and obviously, at 62, Warren's been on this road for a long time. And a lot of my guests are in their 20s, teens, maybe 30s. And I'm really honored to have Warren on the podcast who can kind of share, you know, six decades of this journey with our listeners, um, things that have been helpful, things that have been difficult, the personal revelation he's received, how he stayed in the church, a committed member of the church with, you know, probably difficult experiences at times, but grounding experiences that keeps him in the church. He's a full-time genealogist. Um, he served a mission in Taiwan. We could talk genealogy right now. I'm going to resist that temptation. So we stay focused on his story as a gay Latter-day Saint. Um, but welcome to the podcast, Warren. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Anytime, listeners, I kind of watch from my guests out um, my front door. I Our podcast room is a window that overlooks the street where people drive. Um, those that don't join me via Zoom that come to my home and I my heart just kind of goes out to anybody that's willing to walk up the steps to my home or sign in a Zoom meeting and share their story. It takes so much courage. Um, and even though maybe it's a little routine for me after all these episodes, I just recognize for the guests, it's really courageous for what they're doing. And and they're the they're the heroes in my life for um willing to share their stories so that you are listeners hear their stories, and we can better come together and support each other. So we offered a prayer, and my prayer is that Warren's um, heart will be open to you, that he's got a big heart, and his thoughts and his mind will come out in a way that's helpful, in a way that honors this beautiful story. Um, with that introduction, um, maybe just start pre-mission um, experiences you had in your teenage years, Warren, or or wherever well, you want to start or whatever you'd like to say. You know, I, I can see feelings, interest in men going back to my early childhood. Um, and I, I remember hearing an, uh, an account uh, on YouTube a few years ago where the speaker said, uh, the bullies knew I was gay before I did. That's very much my experience in elementary school, starting from first, second grade, but it got increasingly worse. And in sixth grade, it turned violent. They uh -huh. would uh, uh, wait for me after school and uh, beat me up. And I think the worst of it, there were, oh, nine or ten of them, ten of them that attacked me one day, and there was a 55-gallon barrel oil drum that was used as a garbage can and they uh dumped it out on top of me and sat on top of it and were banging it and then took it off and stripped me naked wow. and paraded me uh around um and then 
put me back under there. And I wow. remember feeling, I didn't understand why they were singling me out, but I think it was also kind of the sealing the, the sense of complete rejection of being a male by a male, by, by, by the group of men. Um, and it, it made me afraid of my peers and feel very separated from them. And I, I reached the point where I, it's almost as if the uh, men were the enemy. They were, if I was vulnerable to men, I would be hurt. And uh, did not have a great relationship with my father, which is not unfortunate. I have a great deal of understanding and forgiving for forgiveness for him. He was a prisoner in World War II wow. and um, spent the winter of 45 walking with thousands of people fleeing the Russian front across Poland wow. in the coldest winter in that area in decades. And I realized 30 years after the fact he had severe PTHD. He, had, he was, uh, you know, in the 60s, whoever heard the word depression as a clinical term. But, and I'm sure that all of that added to our relationship. But then quite suddenly, one night when I was 16, he died of a stroke and left my mother, a young widow, but it was kind of the final separation from, from men. And I felt bad at the time that I didn't feel bad honest. at his death. Uh, as I say, I've come to grips with all of that, but turned turned the world of my family upside down. And then a few months after that, I experienced um, some sexual abuse mm -hmm. by two older men who... Um, uh, I think as is the case with so many men who have experienced abuse, I blamed myself for it for years. Just this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, and I should have stopped it. And it's only in the last few years that I've looked at it and thought, I was only 16. I didn't invite it. I didn't want it. I didn't... Uh, it wasn't my fault. S several times I have, in my early years, I went and confessed about it to bishops as if it were my choice. And it wasn't.
And it was several years after that that a therapist pointed out, and even having the therapist pointed out doesn't, didn't have me completely understand it. But here were men. They didn't care about me. They didn't know my name. But in a sense, they wanted my masculinity. It was my very maleness that they were seeking out. And in, in some ways, I, I see those two abuse situations. The first one where I'm completely rejected by my peers as being a personal male, somebody that was interacting with them. And here I have a completely impersonal situation. And in a sense, I think it cemented my isolation from men, but also a, and I'm ashamed to say it, but a seeking out later of other situations. Impersonal, but for me very addictive, of seeking out men who wanted to take advantage of me. And I, I avoided sexual experiences because that's not what I wanted, but I wanted that, um, the, the beginning of it, the, the tease of having men want me. Um, Pretty honest and insightful, Warren. <laughs> and then that, that was like two months after my dad died. And about two months after that, I had another experience. I, excuse me, I had read in the Miracle of Forgiveness, the, the chapter, you know, the crime against nature that so many men have had various intense reactions to. But the thing that hit me toward the end of the chapter where President Kimball said there are two general authorities that were assigned specifically to work with homosexual members of the church. And I was so confused and so desperate, I couldn't talk to my parents about it. I didn't feel like I could talk to the bishop, but I knew I needed help, and I knew it was beyond my capability. And the only thing listed in the phone book for general authorities was the general church operator. It took me months to gather the courage, but eventually I called the switchboard, and to the woman that I answered, the words actually came out of my mouth that I am homosexual. I heard that there are general authorities that can help. I want to talk to them. The woman put me on hold forever. And when she came back, she said, uh, I'm going to connect you with the office of the First Presidency. I almost, I almost hung up right there and left. But um, a few seconds later, I hear... Um, this is Arthur Haycock. How can I help you? It was a blind transfer. I had to say the words again to Brother Haycock. Uh, and I was scared to death. Brother Haycock had lived four doors down from my parents. He knew my family. If he asked my name, he'd have known 
who I was. I got the word out with him, and then he put me on hold. And he came back. He said, I, the, the people you need to get in touch with is the presiding bishop, Victor Brown. Gave me the number and disconnected. Didn't transfer me. <laughs> it took me months to get up courage again. I called the presiding bishop, the number he gave me, and Victor Brown answered the phone wow. and said, he, he wanted to meet with me and said a time I could go in. I went in. He was as kind as he could be. And I remember him saying that this uh, millstone, he called it, would soon be out off my neck and that I would be free. Just what age are you right here for our listeners? 16. Okay. This is, this is okay. all happening in about a nine-month period. Um. My father's death. And anyway, the, um, he introduced me to a therapist that, uh, you know, I later learned that the two general authorities that had been working with homosexual members of the church were President Kimball and Marky Peterson. But that was before he was president of the church, and they had hired this therapist, and he was quite new. And the second or third time I went in to meet with him, he gave me a list, a sheet of paper that had a list of 15 things on it. He told me that the list came from President Kimball, and my memory of what it was was 15 things that if I did them every day, I wouldn't be gay anymore. And I just latched onto that. And in a sense, it was uh, the worst advice I ever got and the best advice I ever got. Um, I wish I still had the list. I wish I could see what the heading on the list said. But the first one at the top was to read the Book of Mormon 15 minutes every morning and every night. The second one on the list was pray out loud on my knees for 15 minutes every morning and every night. Well, I started doing those things to the best of my 16-year-old ability. And I found basically half an hour a day in the Book of Mormon. I could finish the Book of Mormon in about five or six weeks. So I was reading the Book of Mormon through five, six, seven times a year at 16. After I had read it maybe 10 times, I started reading the Doctrine and Covenants and the, and the Bible and just really coming to know the Scriptures and the Gospel and feeling like God could communicate with me through the Scriptures. Then there was the experience of getting on my knees and I said my usual 16-year-old prayer, which lasted probably 45 or 50 seconds, and then I had absolutely nothing to say. But I had to stay on my knees and figure out something to say. And I learned to talk with God. And I, I learned that God listened, and I felt his love. 
uh, as any gay man will tell you, when you're praying to not be gay, it it doesn't pray away. And God didn't answer that, and I was frustrated with it, but I still knew God loved me. Well, fast forward, I get uh, to BYU, and uh, some of the other things on the list was, you know, to uh, learn as much about the gospel as you can and and take care or attend to educational opportunities. Well, at BYU, I started to take, uh, you know, the one religion class a semester, but then I started taking two classes a semester. I've, I've always loved the Lord and His gospel. I don't think there was ever a point in my life when I didn't know the church was true, but this was an opportunity to really get to know in some depth the doctrine of the church. And I, I was struggling to get out on a mission, but I saw taking these classes as uh, surely this will uh, cure me and give me uh, the healing I wanted to, to be able to get out on a mission. So before I left on my mission, I had taken uh, both halves of the Book of Mormon, both at the freshman level and the return missionary level. Sure. I'd taken both halves of the Doctrine and Covenants, both halves of the New Testament, both halves of the Old Testament. I took a class from Dean Jesse on the life of Joseph Smith. I took a class from Victor Ludlow on the Book of Isaiah. I took a class by Robert Matthews on the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, and I loved that class, so I took it two more times. And then I, um, I'm, I'm forgetting one or two, but anyway, <laughs> I get out on my mission. I've got this in-depth education, and I have been. I didn't realize when I was taking the classes. I was taking the classes out of desperation, but I didn't realize what a difference they were going to make to me in the rest of my life. What a foundation they gave me um, I graduated from BYU in more hours in religion than I did in my major. That's cool. Um, anyway, I finally got out on my mission, served. I, I had a wonderful mission president, and um, by and large, my, my issues with men kind of relaxed there. I still felt the separateness from them, but... Uh, but uh, it was a good experience. I got back, and life started to fall apart quickly, and got back into some therapy, and when I I, I didn't know what direction to go in life, and uh, I remember when I had a, a 
Temple recommend just continue. I, since I was 16 from President Kimball's list, I had been fasting almost every Sunday for years for, for help with my attraction toward men, for, toward the, the uh, uh, well, to be blunt, the masturbation issues. And um, I, I would go to the temple fasting again and again, wanting to know what in the world do I do about this thing? And as I tell the, the answer I get, I'm not saying that this is anybody else's answer because it was revelation to me and, and it came very clearly. The words were, Warren, you are on a plateau. You're going to be on that plateau until you get married. You need to marry. And you need to um, stay in the church. Leaving the church had never been an option. And eventually I was led to a girl I had known all of my life. She's several years younger than I am, but we grew up in the same ward. And I fell in love with her. I felt like she was the person I was supposed to marry. We married. We've been married 35 years. I've never looked back. She has been so supportive. I mean, I I told her my issues before we got married. I was so embarrassed. It was so hard to talk about. But, you know, to, telling her what the issues were or myself and realizing what it was going to mean in our marriage and how much it would affect her life and my life. You know, I had never been married before, and but we made it work. In our, in our own way, we made it work. And we had... Um, Three children in quick succession. I want to back pace, backtrack just a quick second here. Before I got married, uh, a therapist recommended that I read um, Patrick Karn's book that had just come out uh, called The Sexual Addiction. It was the first of his books, and he is the, the guru of uh, how to get unbridled sexual behavior into control. And he also suggested, he said, there's a new group that has just started in Salt Lake that maybe you should go to called Sexaholics Anonymous. And I've never had more shame, I think, in all of my life than walking into that room. I was scared out of my gourd. And it was, I left an hour and a half later feeling more love and more compassion and more sympathy and support than I had ever felt anywhere before. And it was quite uh, jolting for me. I had always wanted to feel that in my quorums from my bishop 
I wanted the church to be able to solve all my problems. And it was hard to, because of my upbringing and the way I thought, to start getting answers from a group. I mean, the room was so filled with smoke when I went in. But to, but to find answers in a 12-step program, that was so obviously not LDS. That's cool. God led me to that meeting. God led me to it a few months after it started. Did your therapist send you because you were gay or be, because of separate issues, these sort of addiction issues? It was, it was addiction issues. Okay. Um, and f- fast forward after I get married, this is eight or nine years later, but one of my friends from that program gave me a call one day and said, Warren, there's this wonderful new group that has started as a support group for uh, gay LDS men. You really should should come check it out. And so a few months after Evergreen got started, I walked into that meeting, and it was the LDS support I had wanted, but I found it didn't have the answers as much as really the 12 steps did. First time I went, there were there were easily 80 to 100 men there. It was in a church cultural hall, and the room was full of men that were just so relieved, so glad to be, in a sense, out of the closet and to have an avenue of support. And eventually I... The group reduced in size quite a bit, but I got into a group of oh, seven or eight men. And it slowly came down to where there were uh, six of us and then five of us. But we met every week on Wednesday night for two hours. Didn't really have an agenda or a lesson or principles we studied, but we supported each other. We loved each other. We came to trust each other. We came to be tight friends. And it was the first time in my life I had really connected with men. And it was a wonderfully fulfilling experience. And Well, I'm going to say what happened to us. Not in a sense that this was reparative therapy or that it changed our sexuality. It did not. And let me, I hope I can repeat that after I say this. But starting about four and a half to five years after we began meeting, the men slowly starting started to feel like they had grown beyond the program and that it wasn't feeling the same needs that it had. And quite frankly, every one of them in turn started saying that their attractions to men had declined. It wasn't that their sexuality changed. 
And I experienced the same thing. It was not reparative therapy that's trying to force change of sexuality on an individual. It, and no, I, none of them would say that it ungayed them, even though it, we didn't understand things. I, I think that was kind of our goal initially, but it's not what happened. But I can say that with one exception, four of us really experienced quite a change. The other, one of them has passed away, but the other three are all still married, all still in the church, all active. And that, I think, is a little unusual for any other group of four men you're going to trace from 1990 to 2020. Um, One of the things, when I first got the phone call from my friend saying you have to come, he said, oh, and there is, they run a softball program and it's absolutely mandatory. You have to come on Saturday mornings. And I, I went into panic and I said, you don't get it. I don't do sports. I don't do softball. I can't throw. I can't catch. He said, it's not optional. And, and as I started to, to attend the meetings, it, I was told it's not optional. I, you, you take the fear I had walking into the FA meeting 10 years earlier and triple it, and that's the, the sense of trepidation at which I approached that softball field. And the most pleasant man was leading the group. He was a therapist. And he took the newcomers aside. There were there were three or four newcomers that day, and and uh, he took us aside and started basically with this is a ball. It is your friend. This is how you hold the ball. And then he demonstrated in slow motion, almost choreographed, how you throw a ball. And he did that four or five times, and then. And the same with catching and with batting. And he was treating it as if uh, teaching a 35-year-old how to catch a ball was the most natural thing in the world. There was no shame. And we would get, oh, anywhere from 20 to 30 men a week. And when it got too cold to play softball, we would do the same with basketball. Inside a gym, this is how you bounce the ball. This he, he taught me how to do a layup. Took me forever to be able to do it, but I learned to do a layup, and then he taught me to do it left-handed. And um, he would encourage the men every week. He'd, he'd sit us down, and we'd kind of we'd process it. What, what were your feelings? How did how did you react to this? Reassuring us that we all felt insecure. We all felt like the spotlight was on us. We all felt like everybody was staring at us and making us realize that nobody was staring at us and and taught us teamwork, whatnot. But he would say, 
as part of that. You, I encourage you to go out and play with your ward team. They probably need you, and it would it will be very good for you. And I'm sorry, I, that, that was absolutely the last thing in the world. I was capable in any degree of doing. But after I'd been going to this group for about three years, it was more than three years, the ward I was living in was, uh, I mean, every week the, the guy in, cor- in quorum over the softball would plead with people to come saying, we, we don't get enough men showing up, we're, we're forfeiting, please consider coming. So I gathered my nerve. By this time, I had a mitt. I, had, I knew how to put it on. And I went to play with the ward team. Now, the men in my quorum knew how completely out of character that was, how scared I was, and were surprised to see me, but welcoming. The men from the other ward, the team we were playing, had no clue. So when I got up to bat, they weren't cutting me slack or or throwing the ball slowly or whatever. And about, yeah, after probably two, two strikes, I connected with the ball. I got to base, first base. And then the next, the next hitter brought me home. I, I awesome. scored for the word team. And it was the only time I went. But it, for me, it was a life-changing experience. I went to Coram the next week. Wow. And I wasn't. Wow. Men weren't the enemy anymore. These weren't. I think I had always approached men as an us versus, you know, me versus them. Rightly so. I'm thinking of that 52 um, gallon yeah, that, container that, from that, your teenage years and all the trauma you would re- continue to hold. Well, uh, and the e- healing potentially in that baseball game. Well, uh, either men as sexual objects, right, with complete anonymity or enemy, right. And I very consciously let a wall come down. I had been the ward heckler. I knew the scriptures better than everybody else put together, and I would sit on the back row. And well, and I, they'd have me teach week after week because the the instructor wouldn't show up. They all had respect for me, but I didn't connect on a personal level with any of them. And then I realized that I had that wall up with every man in my life, that I was the one keeping the distance between myself and my coworkers. And, and other men I knew, men I had known, known in college, that I saw myself as different, 
I saw them as a threat, as a potential danger, and I was still looking at them as my sixth grade nemesis, whatever the plural of nemesis is, uh, that were, I was going to be physically hurt by them and emotionally destroyed by them. And it's like, no, my coworkers really want to be friendly with me. And they weren't the enemy, but I had been making them so. And I let myself start to realize that I've got some friends out there that are not in, you know, in in Evergreen. I had a, a large group of friends, but, you know, they were all gay. And here I was making friends with straight men as an equal. It wasn't, there was nothing condescending about it. But that all, I think that played a big part in my experience of my attractions toward men coming way down because I was no longer different from them. I was, in a sense, one of them. Uh, And I had multiple years there where, well, I I used to borrow Joe Dallas's uh, analogy that the attraction toward men was kind of this mosquito buzzing at my ear, and I would swat it away and just, just carry on and and found a, a great deal of peace there. Now, I'm going to repeat what I said at the beginning. This was my experience. It was at least five or four, six, eight years in developing. I am not saying that any other man has to have a reduction in feelings or that they will experience a reduction in feelings. I'm saying I experienced it, and I know other men who did. Um, And again, this is not a reparative therapy sermon you have to change or that there's anything wrong with the attractions. As I had this experience, unfortunately for me, or I guess in, in some sense almost fortunately, It's the time the internet was coming along. And all of a sudden there is access to pornography that there had never been before. It was instant. It was so much more explicit than anything I'd ever been exposed to before. It was terribly addictive. I had prayed for decades because of my sexual addiction. And I didn't think I would ever get out of that anonymous connection circle. And I think God, separate from my addiction to pornography, but eventually he heard me. 
and he took away my desire and the addiction there that had pulled me so hard for such a long time. The addiction to pornography was a, a different beast. Started very slowly. And then, well, I know I'm the only man on the planet that during those years had uh, in, an increasing problem with it. And I started, frankly, to uh, bring back up the attraction, reinforce it. Um, once again, the pornography did not make me gay. Um, but I knew how to pray and connect with God. And I knew the 12 steps. And I knew how to surrender and bring God into my life. And so I got back into 12 step. This is before the ARP program started. Um, got back into 12 step, got a support system there and just tried to get the pornography out of my life. And I would get on my knees every morning and just plead with God. And I remember there was a, there was a period there of, of many, many months where I was desperate and not feeling I was moving forward. And I had one of the most profound experiences of my life in just it came in a direction I, I didn't expect it in many ways. God didn't answer that prayer, at least not the way I wanted him to. I was working on my master's thesis one day. Uh, and if any of you, your listeners, are interested in um, illegitimacy in Bavaria in the 19th century, boy, do I have a good read for them. Uh, but I went into the local library's study room to work on my master's thesis, and there was a man in there that lived in my ward, member of the state presidency. And I'll just say that he had never been my favorite member of the ward. I don't know why I didn't connect with him, but I didn't. And I was sitting there working, and after about 20 minutes, he got up to walk out. Uh, he didn't see me. He didn't. He didn't say hello to me. But I got this wave of the spirit that just landed on me and said, "This man has been called by me to the state presidency." And I, I immediately had this this deluge of guilt that I I had not been kinder to him in my thoughts. And yeah, time passed, didn't think much of it. And it was about six months later, this man, as a member of the state presidency, was in our sacrament meeting, his home ward, but he was sitting on the stand. And he told me later 
that he looked at me and had one of the strongest spiritual impressions of his life. He said, Warren, being in the stake presidency and having the experience of uh, deciding who the Lord has chosen to be as bishop of a ward, there's nothing to compare with that spiritual experience. And there have been a few other times where I have felt the Spirit strongly. But the impression I got looking at you that day was powerful. And I knew the Lord wanted you called as a high priest. He didn't know anything about my struggles, about my prayers. He had no idea of, I I never shared with him the experience I had with him when he walked past me in the library. My bishop knew of my pornography struggles. He called me in and issued the call. But my bishop didn't understand the situation either. They, you know, the stake president approved it. I I was called and set apart as a high priest. I had the honor of having my brother do that. Um, For me, it was a profound message from God that he knew who I was and that my effort We're acceptable to him. This is a church where effort counts. Love this. If, you know, we had had the, the ward members do hash marks on whether I was in the righteous column or the wicked column, I'm sure because of my pornography habits, I'd have ended up, at least my judgment has been that I would end up on the side of the wicked. But somehow, in my behavior, in my difficulty of being gay, God had never taken that away. In the challenge of living life, in the 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 dissonance, the the um, contradiction of being a gay porn addict did not disqualify me, does not disqualify me in God's eyes. I think that's part of the reason I felt like I had to come today. It's not anybody else's experience. But hopefully it sends a message of possibility out there. God can love me in the pain, in the addiction. He can love you there too. He does love you there. He is leading you there as he led me. And 
Um, I, th- I think that's wh- where I, I want to uh, end my story today, is that message of God's profound love and care and timing. His timing is perfect. I'm just so touched. Keep sharing, Warren. You've got another thought. Well, I I felt feel like I I need to to bear testimony. That Please do. Boy, God can love anyone and does love anyone anywhere, despite dot dot dot. God loves. God forgives. God is looking out for you even in, in your mistakes. And I, I want to say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, there's a side of me that doesn't want to say anything right now and go back and ask questions and just end. Because <laughs> um, I don't want to decrease. It's like having a last speaker in church, the guy... Um, Ben that comes up shouldn't say anything except this is the closing song and the closing prayer. Um, I feel like you're our presiding authority today, obviously. Um, just on behalf of our listeners, this is beautiful. And it's so vulnerable, but it's so healing. And you've been on this road for so long, and so many of our listeners are younger. And to hear your story and your personal revelation and dealing with all the curveballs that have come your way and your commitment to the church and your commitment to the Book of Mormon and prayer and the things that you've done to navigate this is, is, is faith um, promoting and healing. Everything about you've shared today just brings hope and healing to others. And to me, that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And I just love this, several of your ideas. One is that just nothing we can do can take us outside of God's love. And um, one of my other guests talked about my worth is set, everything else is experience. And it's just this idea, because we're beloved children of heavenly parents, that they love us, and that isn't earned. That's just there. Um, I wrote an article in the Ensign, in the October Ensign, about seven tips for solving pornography, and that's sort of one of the tips. It's on page 72, listeners, is just the things you're teaching in, in our worth is set. And, uh, and I think that just puts us in a much better position to receive personal revelation and receive their love and to believe we're worthy of their help if we believe that. And I've learned that pornography addiction, as we've done a lot of podcasts, and that often isn't about a desire to sin or be evil or turn away from God or hurt others. It's a coping mechanism. It's like just other things people do to deal with stuff. And it can, as you know, become an addiction, and it is sin, and it needs to be solved. And you know all that. I love, um, I want to ask a question. I assume that that list you got at age 16 were some things that were unhelpful. Um, Maybe, maybe not. I assume, maybe I'll ask a broader question. You probably received things at times from church leaders that were not helpful and were um things we wouldn't say now, and maybe things around you could change your sexual orientation if you do this. This is possible to become straight. 
And I, I'm not looking for you to be critical of leaders. I'm looking for you to give um, how you to others that have perhaps had advice that they learned was not correct advice or someone held an attitude or belief that later we've learned is not correct. How you how they could navigate that and work through that in their own life, if and especially those that are working to maintain their testimony and their belief. When I said it was the worst advice I had ever received, it it was not that there was anything wrong with the list. Good, that's helpful for our listeners. I, and 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 in a sense, I was on the same mental journey that I've known so many men. You know, they they try to give their lives to God and and they serve their missions with all their heart and come back. And a decade later, have some bitterness because the attraction hasn't gone away. I, I don't know why God doesn't answer that prayer, but he doesn't answer the prayer, take away the gay. And the presumption, really, that I received from that list was that it would take away the gay. And it was a choice on my part, and so I had to repent. And so I spent two decades trying to repent of being gay. And come to find out, as I experienced, basically, the keep the commandment list and, and go the extra mile with it. My experience was different than the expectation. The expectation of God is going to take away the gay didn't go anywhere. But what came instead was this strong sense of God's love in the scriptures, in my prayers, and and in many ways, my relationship with God became the strongest, the most real relationship of my life, intangible. But he loved me even when I was being vile. And over and over again, I would have a a period of failure, and in the middle of it, God would give me a strong spiritual experience. And it's like, okay, now where's the righteousness blessing link here? Because it wasn't there. What I had was a repeated message from God, I love you as you are, where you are. I am knowledgeable of you. I am watching over you. I see your pain. I see your efforts. And leaving me there. You know, we we talk about Joseph Smith in, in Liberty Jail where he spent, wow, six months. Well, this has been... 60 years, God leaves me in the pain. But 
the love and the acceptance and the understanding and the, the connection is greater than the issue of attraction. I wish people could see Warren sitting across my round table. He's just full of light, listeners. He's full of goodness. He's, I mean, he's full of the spirit. He's been refined and stretched in a way that not many mortal people have been. In a, and I just, it's a remarkable story. I, 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 Warren, I asked Warren this question earlier, so I'll ask him again on the podcast. Do you feel the sexual abuse has anything to do with you being gay? Uh, Absolutely not. I think for a long time in my life, I thought there was a connection, and I think the abuse is what brought out the sexual behavior. The the I, and I have I've been faithful to my covenants with my wife. I've but boy, I've 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 struggled. And the abuse definitely started that pattern. But no, I, I was gay before that, and I, I knew I would be gay before I came to this earth. Wow. Um, I agreed to it, and in a sense, I wanted the challenge of it. Wow. I wanted the, the dissonance, the, the situation where things don't, add up they they it's not the easy uh what my kids call the sunday school answers read your scriptures say your prayers go to church attend the temple they, they those things saved my life but they didn't uh, take away the game i love that and i love you one of the themes of, as I work with, listen to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, is this idea of personal revelation that President Nelson talks about so much. But I think in this space, you work harder in this space because there's, there hasn't an, you've never sat in an elders quorum lesson um, or heard a story in church and saying, okay, that's me. That's my story. Now I know how to walk this road. You've had to rely on principles and personal revelation to know how to navigate this. I'm struck with um, the role of straight people in your life. When you mentioned the quorum and how healing that was, that's come up in other podcasts is the connection sometimes just to, you know, be accepted by straight men. And I love this baseball story. That's part of your story. And that one game you can still remember that game, Warren, that you got a hit. I bet you could remember if it was left field, center field, and infield single. You do. Yeah, you're nodding your head. Which field did it? Where'd it go? Uh, it, it went, oddly enough, to right field. Opposite field. I assume you're betting right hand. So that yeah. takes a lot of skill to hit an opposite oh, no. field single, Warren. No, it was, and, it was um, uh, God answering <laughs> prayer. <laughs> but there's just a principle in there, a deep, story in there that's instructive for me in a ministering perspective is what can I can do to create a feeling of belonging if I'm an elders corn president or father or friend and 
that whole experience, you know, coming and playing with your Elders Quorum team, and then the feeling you felt coming to Elders Quorum that next day, that next Sunday, and how different that was and how healing it was and that woundedness in your heart. I'm not a therapist, but I just sensed that your heart had been so wounded that to kind of open it up to to this experience is potentially wounding, but then was so healing. Well, it was the first time I walked into that sexaholics meeting. I was in there, and really for the first time, one of the first times in front of a group, shared my ugliness. And I part of the reason it was so profound was that they loved me despite the ugliness. And I realized that I had been playing the game of, particularly with men, of you say you like me, but you don't know the ugly things I'm doing. If you knew what my addictions were, you wouldn't love me. And here I was in a group that knew the addiction and loved me despite of it, in a sense, even though I wasn't. Uh, coming out to the quorum, I was. I was going in vulnerability in my inability to play and taking the risk and letting them see a side of me that I had been ashamed of and kept hidden. And despite the fact that my abilities weren't nearly as good as anybody else, in my view, they were loving me anyway. And it was part of bringing down that. Yeah. I'm going to read a quote that's in my book. Um, my book, if any of you haven't heard it before, they're listening the first time. It's called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And my friend Kurt Nielsen, a gay Latter-day Saint, sent this to me, and it's from a Catholic priest. Quote, over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness. And I would actually trade the word weakness to vulnerable, to just our humanness. Mostly we're afraid our weaknesses that we hide them at all costs and thus make them unavailable to others, but often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living a double lives against our own desires. One life when we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves, to God as the person who is in control in another life in which we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, and anxious and out of control. The split between these two lives can cause us a lot of suffering. I'm becoming increasingly aware of the importance of coming, of overcoming the great chasm between these two lives. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community became possible to the degree I was able to share my weaknesses with others. Often I became aware of the fact that in sharing of my weaknesses with others, the real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinfulness started to reveal to themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But when I am, once I am able to truly confess my bro- most profound dependence on others and on God, and on God, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. 
So I look at that, Warren, that quote, and I look at some of the stories you're sharing and your willingness to be vulnerable, even in this podcast and with some of the experience you've had. And I just think that's part of your courageous your courageous heart, but the, it's part of the path to healing. And I don't share that with Warren because he needs to hear that. I share that with listeners that um, at appropriate times being vulnerable and honest and just we're all a little wounded, we're all a little sinful, and we all need each other to heal ourselves and God in the atonement. And sometimes Elders Quorum is what I call the perfect answer club where the, the scholarly answer rides the day and no one can kind of open up and share what's really in their heart. And I'm not saying we should do that every Elders Quorum, but we just need to have circles at times. And maybe that's where ministering, if we really own ministering, kicks in as we have these type of ministering visits where people like Warren and others can open up. That's, it reminds me of the the verse from Paul, you know, when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, the idea of when, when I am humble, vulnerable, and letting God in, uh, God meets me where I am. And in many ways, I still struggle a great deal with vulnerability and honesty. I've been more vulnerable in this discussion with you than I think I've, I've ever been. That's honest and an honor. Well. And a credit to you mostly. N- no, it's a criticism of me <laughs> that even some of the people that are closest to me, boy, I still cringe at it. it it's still a swallow hard and uh, be vulnerable. It's always a blessing, but it ain't easy. It ain't easy, but it's, I think we need to learn to do that. And I think for men in particular, we need to recognize that's a, that's a Christ-like attribute and a sign of manhood. Um, for our listeners, there's been, I picked up on the role of straight men sometimes and straight women to help LGBTQ people, gay men, gay women. And there's a few podcasts we've done. If you want to scroll back, um, these are all three BYU straight men that have stepped in the space and just have a bunch of gay people in their life. And they just, they don't do that out of duty. They do it because it makes them a better person. And it also, I think it helped. And I go back to my days at BYU and I look at these three men and I go, I, I couldn't, and I just want to go back and do BYU again and be kinder, and especially in high school, um, as I've written in my book to a couple of gay men in high school. But epi- episode 272 is Dalton Bradford, um, 330 is Jake Young, 338 is Sam Bird, who talks about being um, a great sibling to his gay brother, Charlie. And I think for those of you that are allies listening, I think you have a role here, as you know, is your love and acceptance and just treating everybody as the same, you know, beloved children of heavenly parents can be deeply healing. Um, I'm still going back to the core meeting that Warren walked into after that game of baseball and how everything changed for him. And so I would invite listeners to think, what can I do to duplicate that for the people in my life? The principles that happened in there, you know, Warren did some stuff by getting, by willing to you know, go to the baseball game. Um, but what, 
it's kind of a two-way street, but something beautiful happened there that God was, when say people say God's in the details of our lives, and I listen to this baseball story, there is no way that that happens without God recognizing the end thing that's going to happen here in this one game Warren's going to play in his ward and the fundamental difference for good that made in Warren's life is something I hope we all can figure out how to do. Well, we're at the end, Warren. I'm going to send it back to you for any closing thoughts. Well, I'm, I'm hoping you'll let me come back. would love to have you come back. Because really my story, it, I've got another 15 years. And part of why I want to come back is to talk about a group that I have felt very much that God has has directed me to help organize. Uh, it's a ostensibly a group for gay LDS men with addictions, but really it's it's more just a uh, support group uh, for men. I do it under the. Um, direction of the uh, counseling group, Life-Changing Services. They run uh, Men of Moroni, Sons of Helaman addiction groups, and uh, they've helped thousands of young men particularly get out on their missions. And so th- th- there is a cost structure because I'm, I'm under their, uh, their umbrella, but uh, our webpage will be up shortly under sonsofsacrifice.com. Can I read the scriptural verse? I'd love to have you that, read it. Um, I finally got the name to use for our group. It comes out of section 132 of the Doctrine of Covenants, and it's worth it's verse 50. Behold, I have seen your sacrifices and will forgive all your sins. I have seen your sacrifice in obedience to that which I have told you. Go, go, therefore, and I make a way for your escape as I accepted the offering of Abraham of his son Isaac. And that's where I got the idea, Sons of uh, Sacrifice. And uh, thank you for letting me be with you this afternoon, Richard. It's, uh, it's nice to tell my story all in one piece. It's an honor to have you here, and I love, for your, I love that you've started this group. We'll have you on the podcast to talk about that. And, uh, and your journey, I, I call it the wounded healer. The wounded healer is this idea that you can authentically lead others out of deserts, in this case, addictions, because you know that desert. And i that's another quote someone shared with me. So I don't, I just think all of us can help each other, especially with the challenges we've gone through to lead others through. So I love the way you're, and to me, that's the lack of shame. To me, there's not a lot of shame you're sharing right now on this podcast. You've dealt with shame in probably lots you know, but that's one of the beauties of your story is, is you, I think Satan wins when he puts, sh- puts, creates shame and puts all this in the darkness. 
and you talking openly about these subjects, I think is, is part of, or a key part, especially with addiction, of solving addiction. So I admire you being willing to talk about that and to be vulnerable enough to talk about your own journey in that space, because then I think you're authentic. And people say, okay, this guy's the wounded healer. He knows this road and he can help lead me out of it. And I think that's a beautiful place to be. And thank you for sharing your story as a gay Latter-day Saint. Um, It's a wonderful story. Every story is um, valid and important. You're very careful to say this is just my story, but it's certainly very consistent with all the stories. Part of my book talks about um, that I've come to the conclusion that pornography doesn't change sexual orientation. It's a window into someone's sexual orientation is kind of the way I framed it up in the book and also framed up in the book. And there's lots of stories in the book that uh, being a, you know, a survivor, a victim of sexual abuse doesn't change orientation. A couple of the authors contributed to the book said it's possible that um, predators will pick out more vulnerable, you know, young boys and young girls. Um, but it, that, that, and so there may be some correlation that one person suggested in their post in my book, but not causation. And um, your testimony um, affirms the same thing. And in fact, you went one step further and felt like this is part of your pre-mortal plan when you said, I was always meant to be gay. And listeners, I love that. I would have not been able to quite process that 10 years earlier, but after meeting with so many LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and I just think everybody needs to, and I think it's true that everybody's created as they're supposed to be created and God doesn't make mistakes. He isn't going, oh no, what happened? Warren's gay. Something went wrong. Um, That doesn't change commandment keeping, doesn't take agency off the table, just puts us all on the same moral footing that every Latter-day Saint and every child of heavenly parents is created the way they're supposed to be. And no one should look in the mirror if they're LGBTQ and, and think that part of them is, is unfavorable to God. Because I think that's where Satan starts to win, is if he takes that part of you and makes you feel shame about that. And, and then it separates you from God and prayer and the things that Warren was taught to do at age 16 that I think saved Warren's life um, and gave him the principles to have a relationship with Heavenly Father and the gospel that sustained him through all these years. And it's a remarkable story. So we love you, Warren. Can, can, can I add? Yes, because I kind of went that? off on that and I want to. <laughs> well, no, absolutely. Um, I, I am not broken because God let me be gay. It was part of the difficult mortal test that I was sent to experience. It does not mean that I am a failure. At the same time, I think for my parents, my wife, my children, it has, it has affected all of them. True. But it, it doesn't mean that my parents were a failure because I'm gay or that my wife isn't beautiful enough. Uh, or she hasn't been a good enough wife. She's been a, she's been a wonderful wife, a constant support to me. But it, yeah, it's it's been a challenge, and uh, I think that idea of we're living the life we're supposed to live 
extends far beyond the individual with the struggle. It's, it's this mesh of the difficult experiences we're all supposed to have in life. And it's okay to let go of causality in it. I'm having this challenge because I haven't been righteous enough. Love that. So this is Warren Bittner, B-I-T-T-N-E-R, and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>